Let's turn together in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Focusing this evening on verse 8. Let's go to the throne of grace together, asking for God's blessing. Our great God, speak now, for thy servants listen. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2. Begin with me at verse 6 for context. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last time we saw that we have begun a new section in Colossians. Paul is calling us to a consistent focus upon Jesus Christ, calling us to live solely out of Jesus Christ and no other system, order, or way of life. As we saw last time, the beginning of the Christian life, verse 6, as you received Christ, is of a piece with the continuance of the Christian life. Walk in Him. Again, verse 6. Both conversion and growth, becoming a Christian and living as a Christian, have to do with Christ. Receiving Christ leads to walking in Him. Union with Christ manifests in continual communion with Him. So those two aspects we saw last time, the beginning of the Christian life and the continuance of it, are more similar than they are different. You received Christ as hopeless and helpless in yourself, finding all fullness in Him, So also, you now walk in Christ as hopeless and helpless in yourself, finding all fullness in Him. You received Christ as a beggar with nothing to give but everything to receive. So also, you now walk in Christ as a beggar with nothing to give but everything to receive. As in conversion, so also in the progress of the Christian life, it is living faith, union, and communion with Jesus Christ that is the central and determining factor. That was the missing fourth point that we did not hear last time. As we move now to verse 8, Paul is moving from the positive to the negative. The positive in verses 6 and 7 is to walk in Christ. The negative in verse 8 is to avoid deception by all that is not Christ. And those things belong together. In more biblical terms, the move from verses 6 and 7 to verse 8 is one of put on to put off. Put on the fullness of Christ six and seven, and put off the empty, earthly, worldly, fleshly, fallen, human way of things, verse eight. Paul begins with the positive, putting on Christ before he moves to the negative, put off what is worldly, starting with the truth before dealing with falsehood. He starts with what is life-giving before warning of what is deadly. Because the only way you and I, our children, our young people, are going to avoid being taken captive by the glamour of this sin-cursed world is by tasting and seeing the fullness of heavenly life that is ours in Jesus Christ. The antidote to falsehood, false teaching, living, and thinking is Christ. 
The name of the game is getting more of Christ, not adding to him or seeking something else beside him. So we'll look at this in, in four points this evening. First of all, the command. The command in the first part of verse 8 there, see to it that no one takes you captive. This command has to do with acknowledging the difference, the irreconcilable difference between Christ and all the systems and ways of life that are of the earth. In a word, this irreconcilable difference between Christ and all that is not Christ is called the antithesis. Things that are set in antithesis are opposed to one another, opposite of one another, and there is no possibility of combining them. This is what Adam failed to understand in his testing in Eden in the beginning. The word of God and the word of the devil were not two equally legitimate theories that Adam was to examine neutrally and by means of a set of principles higher than both theories in order to determine whether God or the devil was right. Rather, Adam should have felt compelled to recognize God's word as true and original and the devil's word as false and counterfeit. When God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die, Adam should have recognized the supreme authority of God himself in that prohibition, and he should have responded with delightful obedience, saying, yes, Lord. Adam should have recognized God's abundant goodness to him, as God had created him in the divine image and likeness, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, in natural religious fellowship, in the paradise of God on earth, a copy of the paradise of God in heaven, with the opportunity to secure the highest heavenly life with God, free from threat of death and change by his loving obedience to God's commands. And if there were a question in Adam's heart, why is God forbidding me to eat from this one tree that in itself is no different from the others, his response should have been, God's wisdom, truthfulness, and goodness, both in himself and shown unto me, are beyond question. And so even though I don't understand what God has said, whate'er my God ordains is right. And on the other side, when the devil said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam's natural religious instinct should have kicked in and led him to say, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire punishment prepared for you and your angels. Adam should have recognized that this voice was the voice of an enemy calling him to stand over God's word, judging it, rather than submit to God's word, obeying it. Adam should have crushed the serpent underfoot and cast him out of the holy realm of Eden, giving no consideration to this enemy of God's lordship. That is the response of worship. That is the only response of living face-to-face devotion to God and His glory for its own sake. The forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden was a tree of testing. Will Adam rightly judge between good and evil? Will Adam display allegiance to the one true God or to the devil? Will Adam live for God's glory or for his own glory? We, of course, know how the story goes. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. But praise be to God, what Adam failed to do, Jesus Christ, the second and last Adam, has done for me and for you. In hunger, in the arid wilderness, 
with no human help, and with more temptations, Jesus Christ displayed perfect allegiance to God and did not believe the lies of the devil. Securing the highest heavenly life with God that can never be lost is something you and I cannot do because we are sinners. But Jesus Christ has secured that life for us. We have newness of life in his resurrection from the dead. We are brought near to God in his ascension into heaven. And now that we have this life, we walk in it. While we are citizens of heaven now, we are not home yet. False teaching in various forms seeks to distract us from Christ and to pull us away from him. Walking in Christ in the newness of life that is ours in him means vigilance against all earthly demonic traps. That command there is the first word in verse 8, C. It's in the present tense. It's something we are to do continually over and over again. This is a command to beware of what is hazardous. Watch out for danger. Be on your guard. Pay attention to your surroundings because laziness here is deadly. Be prepared to respond appropriately. As long as we await the consummation of God's kingdom, there is always demonic activity to resist and stand against. We are constantly in need of putting off what is earthly and putting on what is heavenly, which Paul will deal with more in chapter 3. In particular here, in verse 8, we are to see in the sense of being vigilant that not one thing, not one person will be carrying you away as plunder. That's the command as we see it get more specific in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Now there, Paul uses a future tense. To, to translate another way, be something like, see to it that no one will take you captive. And I think the future tense there probably indicates Paul's pastoral concern for the flock. That if you are not watchful, you will be taken captive. It is not a hypothetical situation. False teaching is a real, genuine threat with eternal consequences, and you, believer, must take it with the utmost seriousness. While a plague sends you to the grave, false teaching will send you to hell. That is how serious this is. Paul has in view here total exclusion. Whatever false teaching of whatever variety arises, see that no one deceives you. Up to this point, we could paraphrase, watch out lest anyone take you captive. The language Paul uses there to speak of captivity is striking. It's the image of carrying someone away from the truth into the slavery of error. This is what happens on the battlefield when a defeated soldier is stripped of his armor and his weapons. One aspect of military compensation is you can plunder your defeated enemy. Paul's language here, as one dictionary puts it, suggests the picture of prisoners being carried off with a rope around their necks like the long string of captives portrayed on Assyrian monuments. Such spectacles were a common occurrence when Roman armies returned from successful military expeditions. Now, Christian, are you seeing this? Error is nothing to play around with. Whatever is not Jesus Christ, whatever is not centered upon him, distracts from him, exalts man rather than the God-man, that is not something to give yourself to, to identify with, to rest in, to take refuge in. Paul's language here indicates this is a constant danger that you must be constantly watchful over. We've already seen back in chapter 1, verse 13, that you, believer, have supernaturally, irreversibly 
been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is a new order of things, a new way of things. You are, as Herman Ritterboss helps us to see, now the, the center of your life is in heaven, not in earth. He helps us to see the centrality of heaven for the believer while on earth. Ritterboss puts it this way, because Christ is our life, our life has also gone with Christ to heaven. The church, so far as its life on earth is concerned, is determined, governed, nourished from heaven. This means that our home is in heaven, not on earth. It means that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth because we belong to heaven in Jesus Christ. Because heaven is the realm of creator worship and earth is the realm of creature worship, because heaven is the realm of life and earth is the realm of death, Because heaven is the realm where God is acknowledged as supreme Lord, and earth is the realm where the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, because of this difference, this dichotomy between heaven and earth, because we belong to heaven and no longer to earth, believer, be on your guard against being taken captive by worldliness. What are those things that the evil one uses? What are those things that false teachers use, that our own sinful hearts are seduced by. That's the next phrase there in verse 8, by philosophy and empty deceit. This is the means by which believers may be plundered. It is by means of philosophy and empty deceit that threatens to carry you, believer, into slavery. Now, at a quick glance, it appears that Paul is telling us to avoid the study of philosophy in and of itself as a discipline. It looks as if Paul is forbidding the study of metaphysics or epistemology or of philosophers. It should strike us as strange if that is what Paul is saying, given the way that the biblical authors interact with the philosophical systems of their day. Paul himself, in Acts 17, speaking to the Athenians, quotes two pagan writers using their words to speak of the one true and living God. Go look at that sometime in Acts 17. The statements he quotes from Eratus and Epimenides, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are indeed his offspring. Those statements were originally said by unbelievers about a false god, probably Zeus. But Paul uses those very statements to confront the Athenians with the truth of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can Paul do this? It's really quite simple by dethroning the imagination of men and enthroning the one true God, by which I mean enthroning, not that we set him up, but recognizing that he is set up as king. By using the the ways of thinking, the categories of thought, which God has raised up in his world in spite of the world's rebellion against him, using those categories of thought as instruments to bear witness to the truth of God. Now, this might sound abstract and strange, so let me give an example. Cornelius Van Til highlights the way in which Solomon built the temple of the Lord. 1 Kings 5 and following, Solomon used timber from his pagan friend, Hiram the king of Tyre, to build the temple. He used pagan materials to construct a house for God's glory. Now, Solomon did not say to Hiram, thanks for the timber, let's build the temple of the one true God together. You can have a wing of the temple for Baal as long as the majority of the temple is for my God. No, as Van Til says, 
When Solomon built the temple of God, he was instructed to make use of the peculiar skill and the peculiar gifts of the pagan nation that was his neighbor. But this was something quite different than to build together with pagan nations. They merely wanted to bring their treasures to Solomon and let him construct the way he saw fit. That is how Paul and John and the creeds and confessions of the church throughout history have articulated the truth of the Christian faith, not by merging the Christian faith with other systems of thought, but by using their words to speak the truth of God's word and call men to acknowledge him and him alone as Lord. Paul is a great example of these things, using all manner of language and concepts for the purpose of confronting men at every point with Christ's lordship and not emerging of Christ with any other lord. So Paul himself used philosophy in, in some sense when he was in Athens and, and in other contexts. What does he mean then in warning us here not to be taken captive by it? Well, the key is here to take the entire phrase together, by philosophy and empty deceit. The and there elaborates and clarifies through a philosophy which is empty deceit. That points up that what is problematic, what you and I are to avoid, is not philosophy per se, but whatever is empty deceit. Now, given the, the theme of Colossians, the empty deceit to watch out for is anything that does not acknowledge the priority supremacy, and centrality of Jesus Christ. That is, I think, one reason that Paul is somewhat un unrevealing, somewhat guarded, and not giving all the specifics of the Colossian heresy, because whatever the specifics of it, it is whatever that is not Jesus Christ that we are to be on the lookout for and to avoid. Probably, none of you are being drawn away from Christ by philosophical speculation, idealism, existentialism, empiricism, though if you are, this still applies to you. You're probably drawn away from Christ or tempted to be so by the countless other manifestations of empty deceit this world has to offer. It could be the endless cycle of news, giving more attention to current events than to Christ. It could be a wrong emphasis on politics Failing to remember that we are pilgrims in this world, strangers in this land, that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It could be a relationship, living more life online than real life, filling spare moments with mindlessness rather than meditation, anger, worry, the list goes on, you see my point. Anything can distract us from Christ. Empty deceit, it is vanity, it's whatever is pointless, it's whatever is senseless, Whatever is devoid of value, whatever is plausible but misleading, we saw that in verse 4. In terms of what we've seen already up to this point in Colossians, empty deceit is the opposite of the heavenly fullness of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ, verse 3 in chapter 2. So I think it is wise to see philosophy here as representative, representative of anything we give ourselves to any lifestyle, and any, any identity, group, way of thinking, all sorts of things can be empty deceit. Now, from here on out, Paul uses three phrases which elaborate what empty, deceitful teaching and lifestyles consists in. Consist in. Each of those phrases begins with according to, and those three phrases are our next three points. So secondly, and more briefly, secondly, human tradition. Human tradition. That's that next phrase in verse 8, according to 
human tradition. Now, in each of these remaining phrases in verse 8, the preposition according to is used pretty much the same way. These last three phrases indicate the kind of philosophy, again, representative, the kind of lifestyle, way of thinking we are to watch out for. Now, Paul's already warned against philosophy, which is empty deceit. Now he's describing it further. The, the three uses of this preposition are, are, are clarifying. Watch out for a philosophy that is in accord with human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, and not Christ. Watch out for a philosophy that is sourced from human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, and not Christ. Watch out for a philosophy that is in relation to these things and not Christ. Watch out for a philosophy that is of a peace with, in union with these things and not Christ. In a nutshell, avoid whatever is not of Christ, but also by implication, pursue and receive whatever is of Christ. So that the first of those phrases, according to human tradition. Again, we're talking here in these three phrases, these three according to clauses about the source the, the source of your philosophy, your way of life, how you conduct yourself, what you walk in, what you give yourself to. In other words, as we saw last time in verse 6, your walk, your way of life. Make sure that your way of life isn't sourced from human tradition. And we should add here that human tradition that Paul warns against is not about the creeds, the confessions, the theology, the theologizing, the non-inspired writers throughout church history have produced after the completion of Scripture. If your viewpoint is no creed but the Bible, good luck repeating 2,000 years of church history all by yourself. Ephesians 4, Paul there makes clear that for the good of the church, Christ has in his exaltation given his church teachers who explain, who articulate, and apply and defend the truth of God's Word generation to generation. Good theology comes from the Bible, and it helps us love the Bible more and think and live more biblically. Without question, prayerful reading of Scripture must have priority for all of us, but don't neglect the gifted teachers Christ has given to His church. Work in the catechisms, the confession, Calvin, Bovink, Voss, Gaffin, Pallison to your diet. What Paul warns against here is all that disregards Christ's lordship all that is earthly and autonomous, a law unto itself. Human tradition is all the ways of life and thinking that are characterized by human weakness and imperfection, all the ways of doing things that originate from the mind of man rather than the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It is man-made rather than God-revealed. Specific practices or ways of doing things that we observe just because that's what everybody else is doing. And we should also add, because we are sinners— this kind of practice also comes up in the church. Be on your guard when you say, when you hear someone say, we do these things because it reaches people, or we've always done things this way. And as good as our intentions can be, we always need to come back to what God says, not what we deem best, but only what is set down explicitly or may be deduced by good necessary consequence by implication from the voice of Christ in His Word. So in this phrase, according to human tradition, we see the emptiness of man-made ways of thinking and living. Thirdly, the worldly elements, the worldly elements, that's the next phrase there, according to the elemental spirits of the world. 
Now, this is a fun one. The word Paul uses here, translated elemental spirits, can also be translated fundamental principles. Might be a better translation. More broadly, this word has to do with agreeing with something, being in line with something. Now, Paul uses that same word later in chapter 2, and we get a preview of it, of it here. Look down with me in your copies of God's Word to verse 20 of chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, same word, of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, as you notice all that unpacking of the elements, the worldly elements there from 20 to, to 23, elemental spirits of the world, you've died to these things. They have, they have to do with human precepts and teaching. They have an appearance of wisdom. In other words, their foolishness. They promote self-made religion. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Already from that quick reading, it's obvious that these elements, translated the elemental spirits of the world, they're not referring to the physical world. This is an ethical contrast. This is a kingdom-to-kingdom contrast. Don't be deceived, believer, by the empty deceit that comes from the fundamental principles of this sin-cursed world. Don't be taken captive by this worldly principles and ways of doing things. Don't be enslaved by things which originate from this fallen realm. Rather, walk in the freedom of the newness of life that is yours in Christ. It's important there in verse 8 that we read the entire phrase, the elemental spirits of the world. Herman Ritterboss comments that the elemental spirits, the, the basic principles of this world, refers to, quote, the sin-dominated world of men in which believers are no longer to live and is another expression for the tradition of men, end quote. So this is about the sin-cursed world we no longer belong to. Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age and by implication to make us part of the age to come. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We are no longer defined or determined by or a part of this lower sin-dominated world. We belong to a new realm. We have a different membership in a new order of things, a new kingdom, the heavenly kingdom of God in, in Jesus Christ. So we're no longer part of this. We're no longer part of this lower order of things, this worldly system, believer. We're no longer under its jurisdiction. We belong to heaven and not earth. And as long as we remain on earth, we are strangers and pilgrims passing through onto our homeland. So in the meantime, during your pilgrimage, don't get caught up in things that you've been freed from. Here in this phrase, we see the emptiness of this worldly ways of life as opposed to the fullness of heavenly life in Jesus Christ. Fourthly and finally, Christ. That, that last according to clause and not according to Christ. Instead of human tradition that concocts things apart from in rebellion against the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, instead of the system of life that the world, dominated by sin under, under the power of the evil one, offers and promotes, you, believer, 
have a new mode of existence, a new kind of life. As Paul makes clear in chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is your life. Therefore, your, your philosophy, your way of life and thinking, comes from Christ and His life-giving power. We've already seen in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, Christ is identical with the divine essence. 1, 17, He is the one in whom all things cohere, the personal principle of coherence in all created reality. 1, 18, the exalted pioneer who brings His church into heavenly life, which is His kingdom. 119, the one in whom all redemptive fullness dwells. 127, the revealed mystery and the, re- the foretaste of glory. And chapter 2, verse 3, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Do you know those first two things, the human tradition and the fundamental elements of this world, what they have in common? They're not Christ. They're not of the world of heaven. They're of this world. They're this worldly, not otherworldly. They're of this sin-cursed world, not the heavenly world of life, light, and glory. But Christ's kingdom is otherworldly. What he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. His is a kingdom of redemption for sinners, a kingdom of life for those in the midst of death, a kingdom of wisdom for those in a world of foolishness. So the fundamental principles are antithetical. They're opposed, aren't they? The fundamental principles of this world are opposed to the principles of Christ's kingdom. This world says, you do you. Christ's kingdom says, glorify and enjoy God. This world says, express yourself. Christ's kingdom says, humble yourself. This world interprets everything in light of time. Those in Christ's kingdom interpret everything in light of eternity. This world offers death. Christ's kingdom offers life, whether we live or die. This world offers what is powerless. Christ's kingdom offers resurrection power. This world offers what is empty, Christ's kingdom offers the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. Christ is creator. Everything else is mere creature. Christ is the life and embodiment of heaven. Everything else originates from this fallen realm of sin, corruption, and death. Christ, 127, is the foretaste of glory. Everything else is the foretaste of judgment. Christ is the fullness. Everything else is not partly full. It is emptiness. When you taste and see something of the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, you see everything else for what it truly is, empty deceit. So, pastor, we should never watch the news, check social media, hang out with friends. If those things get more of your time and attention than Christ, if those things deaden your affections for Christ, if you're not able to make use of those things as gifts from His generous hand, and are not able to glorify and enjoy Him in those things, see to it that nothing takes you captive by empty deceit. This is an issue of idolatry, but with a a heightened significance because we worship the risen, exalted, ascended Christ, the one who has accomplished redemption. Because of of who He is now as, as mediator, who He is in His human nature, the Son of God in power, the one who lives by the power of God, the risen and enthroned Lord, Idolatry, which has always been sinful, is exceedingly sinful and all the more foolish. Heidelberg Catechism 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is to conceive or have something else in which to place our trust instead of or besides the one true God who has revealed himself in his word. So it doesn't matter what or or who it is, 
whatever we seek pleasure from, take refuge in, turn to, find identity in, seek satisfaction in, place hope in, that is not Christ, that is a heart of idolatry. You may not literally bow down to wood and stone idols, but consider such what Pallison would call x-ray questions. What is most important to you? How do you spend your time? What things do you prioritize? What things do you get to only if you have time left over after other things? What do you, or who do you turn to in hardship, in boredom, for recreation? What voices fill your mind the most? Now, for our forefathers, idolatry should have been unthinkable for Israel since they experienced God's redemption from Egypt under Pharaoh to come to earthly Mount Sinai to head toward Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. So how much more should idolatry be unthinkable for you and me, believer, upon whom the end of the ages has come, since we have tasted and seen a greater exodus, one from sin's enslaving power, the tyranny of the devil, to come to heavenly Mount Zion to head toward the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Believer, these are issues of cosmic proportions. Now that Christ has been raised from the dead and has been ascended into heaven, the age to come has begun. Heaven has broken into earth. This lower realm we find ourselves in is a realm that is cursed because of sin. Everything that, it, that originates from this realm exists in perishability, dishonor, and weakness. This is a realm where the devil rules. It is a realm of sin and death, a realm destined for destruction. But you don't belong to this realm, believer. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. You're here in this sin-cursed world for now, but you are not of this sin-cursed world. You are a citizen of heaven. And so it is very simple. It's two options. You are either breathing the pure air of heaven or the polluted air of earth. One is life-giving, the other is deadly. All that is not Christ is mere human opinion and tradition. All that is not Christ is of this sin-cursed world upon which God's wrath is revealed and which is headed for destruction. It is hard to hear the shepherd's voice loud and clear if you're filling your mind with other voices. But also, thanks be to God that it's hard to be drawn toward other voices if you are listening with focus sincerity, with greater and greater consistency, with meditation and love to the one whose love is better than life, the great shepherd who makes our cup overflow, Psalm 23, 5. All that is of Christ is of heaven because he is the way to heaven, the life of heaven, and the true embodiment of heaven, John 14, 6. Believers, see to it that you avoid earthly deception in its countless forms and that you instead live out of the newness of heavenly life that is yours in Jesus Christ, he who is your life. In conclusion, take this pastoral word from John Calvin to heart. Would you be reckoned as belonging to Christ's flock? Would you remain in his fold? Do not deviate a nail's breadth from purity of doctrine. For unquestionably, Christ will act the part of the good shepherd by protecting us, if we but hear his voice and reject those of strangers. Amen, and may God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word.